We're speaking with people that are sending a pulse through their industry. Pulse through their industry. If you want to be taken seriously, you have to be consistent. Have to be consistent. You got to keep the big picture that hey, we're changing the world. We're changing the world. The league presents Electric People. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Electric People. Our guest today. It's been really fun to get to know Boyd Curry. So. Boyd Curry was a friend of Vern Marshall, who works with our leadership group, and any friend of Vern Marshall is a friend of mine. Is that true, Boyd? That is that is true. He's a good dude, man. He's a hardworking man. Every time I talk to him, he's always out on the street. He's always on the beat. Well, that's what we do. And uh, he was telling me a little bit about your story and a little bit about your background, and he's like, man, I have this friend who was a night stalker, uh, for the special forces teams and he does all this consulting work for for aviation companies and he's like he'd be an awesome guest so a couple phone conversations later and here we are appreciate you being on hey i appreciate you guys having me thank you very much it's an honor to be on your show well thanks for being here man i'm excited to delve into some of the life lessons we did a kind of a get to know you call a little while ago and i was like man we should have just recorded that one so hopefully i do you justice here where, where are you calling me from so I actually live in the Fort Worth Metroplex area right now. We, uh, I, I just moved from Amarillo about a year ago. So my daughter, she's a professional gymnast, and she uh, needed to get to a better gym. So we, I took this job, kind of came off the line flying for about a year and a half, and, and uh, we came to Fort Worth. Uh, it was kind of closer to home, and so we, we landed in this area, mainly for family reasons and, and work purposes. So that's how we ended up here. Well, that's what you do, man. Well, that's great. Um, so I'm interested in the in the job of a night stalker. I'm interested in the this is the coolest name ever, by the way. That's got to be the coolest title in the military is night stalker. Do you concur? <laughs> well, it was a uh, you know the guys that came before us. I mean, they they really I think dove in and dedicated themselves, and they're uh, they're they're everybody in there I think is an ornate um, professional from the time they walk in until the time they walk out well they well they left their mark on it so walk me through um, before we, we walk through your path and, and tease out lessons from it tell me what tell me what that role is tell me what tell me what a night stalker in the military does you know so really our role uh, we've got four battalions currently we've got first and second battalion at uh, Fort Campbell, and really those that those battalions are really, um, if you look it up online, if you were to Google it, it, it would tell you that, you know, we really work with the Tier 1 units out there. Uh, you know, the DEP group guys uh, to the Delta guys, um, and, and then we've got the other units, 3rd uh, Battalion and 4th Battalion that are in Savannah, and then out at uh, Fort Lewis, and those are really dedicated for the, uh, for the white soft guys. Uh, the white special operations forces that are out there, you know, the Rangers, the special forces and, and those type units. Uh, there, there's just never enough aviation assets on the battlefield. And that's really what we do is, is we are, you know, the, uh, the, the personal go-tos whenever they need to get from point A to point B, no matter where it is in the world, you know, that's, that's us. We do it plus or minus 30 seconds. Wow. So you work across all different facets of the military. You mentioned Rangers, you mentioned Delta, you mentioned the DevGru, the SEAL teams. You guys are kind of, you work across all the different arms of the military to deliver their special teams deep behind enemy lines. Is that right? 
We do. Yes, sir. Yep. That, that's, uh, that's exactly what we do is, you know, when we go through uh, the specialty training, when we go through Grand Platoon training, you know, they're going to train you in all the environments that you're going to go through. So it'd be, you know, desert, urban, uh, jungle, over water. Uh, you're you're going to get you're going to get the whole gamut. So by the time you get out of Green Platoon, you're you're at least ready and trainable, uh, you know, to be put out there as an asset. And how, how many guys? How, how big of a field is it? How many guys? operate as as night stalkers is it a small elite group is it relatively big you know it i don't know if they open source the the amount of numbers that are out there uh i'm sure several hundred at at each base uh but i don't know if they actually you know have the amounts or have the numbers that are out there um it it is it's a battalion uh, at, at each compound or at each base and uh, and so you know enough to to operate you know fifteen or twenty Blackhawks and and then the other specialty aircraft that they have. I've always been fascinated with how systematic and how well uh, the military operates stuff like that. Like even to have this many people that are all in charge of these different vehicles that will coordinate with these different teams to get a mission done. It's it's pretty impressive. Do you get to see much of that at the operational level? Like, do you get to to participate in the planning, or is it mostly you get your job, you guys deliver, and everyone else delivers on theirs? You know, everything. You know, if if we were to get an actual real world mission, you know, you really are. Everybody's locked and set, ready to go all the time. Obviously, I mean, you know, that's that's the way you're postured. You know, twenty four seven. Uh, and then once, you know, something happens, wherever that would be, you know, then usually everybody is, uh, is involved with the planning phase and, you know, in the loadout phase and, and everything from A to Z, uh, because you never know. I mean, you might be, uh, and you might be in route somewhere, uh, and we've gotten dirt diverted before too. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where literally, uh, we can be delivered anywhere in the world, plus or minus 30 seconds. And that's, that's really what we do. And that's what the customer counts on, uh, is, is for that contingency. Uh, so that's, that, that's what we provide. When you say the customer, who are you referring to? So any of the, any of the ground guys that, that are on board that, that we're servicing or, or that, you know, we're providing a, an aviation service for. So that's just how we try to, you know, look at them as they are our customers. They're the ones that, you know, we really are trying to uh, to make sure that we deliver a, a good product every single time. That's really interesting. Your your word choice is interesting to me, that you would say, that you would call them customers and feel like you're there to, to service their needs. I look at it and it's like, okay, you got you got this military operation that you're going on. You have a special, like a, a specific goal or objective. But I think I think it's interesting the fact that you would say, now we're here to to service these people, almost like a like a business relationship. You know, I, I think it, you know. In the end, you really have to have a uh, you know for what we do. I think for any any time, uh, special operations guys out there, because you know anybody that are in these tiered units, it, it's an all volunteer. You know, it's an all volunteer unit. Every everything. So I think when we say customer, I think it's more because we're servant oriented. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know we're we're there to take care of those guys, and and you know and they do the same thing for us. We know, uh, you know, I, I never worried about being shot down anywhere I was. Uh, really? 
You know, I always thought, I always knew that uh, that no matter what, I wasn't going to get left behind. I mean, that's that is that is what we do. I mean, if you, I don't know if you remember the uh, the Battle of Mogadishu, or you saw Black Hawk Down, you know, yeah, uh, Michael, Michael Durant out of the one sixtieth, and uh, and you know they they flew around for you know, for night after night, you know, um, with loudspeakers all throughout the city, you know, letting him know, hey, hey, we've not forgotten you. You're not forgotten. We're, we're going to come and get you, you know. So you know that, you know, we're, we're there to get them and, and we're there to, you know, take them anywhere in the world, plus or minus 30 seconds. And uh, and they, they've got our back also. So it's, you know, knowing that you work with a group of dedicated guys like that, it, it really does put you – you know, at ease to be able to uh, to go out there and do what you have to do. Yeah, I was going to say it probably gives you the confidence that you need to actually navigate these vehicles in the way that you need to. If you if you don't have the if you don't have the looming fear or you know the potential like fatal consequence on your brain all the time, it probably liberates you to really be excellent at your job. It expedites your thinking. It really does. It, it allows you to focus on you know the important things. And uh, and not you know is, is anything going to happen to me? Of course, everybody you know everybody has the fear factor you know if something goes wrong or or, or whatever. But you know for the most part, I, I think we all knew out there that uh, you know no matter what, I know the guys are going to be there for me. Um, so that that was I think that's what kept me going and kept me motivated. You know even in the even when I knew times were tough. So. It's fascinating to me the way we've had a couple of different um, special ops or high performing military people on this show. And it's fascinating to me that it works as well as it does. For example, there's a couple of things I hear even in this brief conversation we've had so far. But, you know, you're, you seem really bought into the mission where, hey, we can get you anywhere you need to go plus or minus 30 seconds. You say, you know, I know that they won't leave anybody behind. I find that fascinating with a volunteer organization. Two things. Number one, that people buy into the culture so much to where it becomes part of their vernacular and their their thought process. But uh, the other thing is that it's a, people don't stand back. All of the high performers that I've met, you guys want to be in the action. You want to be in the fight. Where, where does that come from? You know, I think it's I think that has to be an internal drive. I, I really do. I, I don't. <laughs> I, I don't. I just don't think that can be taught. I mean, you know, a skill can be taught, uh, you know, or an action can be taught. Uh, but I think that that fire in the gut, you know, I think that's just that either you have it or you or you don't. Uh, and then you can always hone that, you know, and focus that energy to where it needs to be focused. But you know, I. I we'd see guys all the time, you know, that that would come in. They'd come in for an assessment or something like that. And, uh, and it's, you know, you, we, we sometimes during the assessment, we would go, you know, jump in the PT line with them or whatever, just to hear what they had to say, because they didn't know us from Adam. So we'd go run the, I'd go run the two mile with them. I'd do the push up sit-ups with them. And, uh, and, uh, and just to, uh, you know, are these guys humble? What do they think about the unit? Uh, and, and so you, the guys that you really didn't think would, you know, quit on you or, or have a problem. Uh, man, it, it's just, it, I'm always amazed at, you know, even some of the bigger guys, they just, they, they just tank, you know, it, it's at the end of the day, it's that fire in the gut that, that really keeps you going. So you guys actively hunt people that have that you're looking for that, 
I've heard it called a couple different things. I work with West Coast sales teams. We call it the real kind. We're always looking for the real kind of leaders. Um, but I know Coach Peterson calls them OKGs, our kind of guys. You guys are just constantly looking for people that, do you like know them when you see them? Can you sniff them out? You know, I think so. I, I, I really do. It, it's, uh, you, you know, you, you're looking for somebody who obviously uh, they're always looking for more. They're always looking for the for the next step. They're always looking for the next challenge. Uh, you know, they, they don't back down from a challenge. Uh, so I, I think so. You know, I, I, could, I think whenever I meet a guy, you know, I, I think, man, you could have could have been a, a fantastic night stalker. Or, really? Or, or the, uh, yeah, I think so. I, I, I really do. I, I think you can see that as soon as you know, as soon as you meet somebody, you know, within a five or ten minutes, you know, you know, you know if somebody's got that or not. You know if they have that passion, that burn, that desire, and, and that get go. You know, I was just at a job fair, and uh, and probably talked to twenty pilots that were looking for jobs, and there were just that one or two that stood out. You know, I remember this one kid that came up and he was yes sir and this is what i'm doing i know i don't have enough hours yet but man i'm going to get there and these are my goals and da, da, da. And i was thinking this is you're going to make it you know you're gonna you've got what it takes to make it make it in the industry and do good so and it's the same thing in the special operations community is that that guy that really steps out there and you know is out running on his own or he's out you know doing what he has to do even when nobody's looking so yeah i, I think it is well and ultimately i mean it's supremely important. You have to trust them with potentially your life, right? So it probably serves you well to vet them completely, make sure they're the right kind of people and have the right stuff, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. We, and we, you know, you could kind of see the, the vetting process, you know, that, that we use. It's similar to, you know, to what the SEALs use. Uh, the names put out there, uh, you know, when they're going through, when they're going through assessment and, you know, you're going to know, you, if you know them, uh, you're gonna you're gonna let them know, and everybody's everybody's pretty transparent in that world because at the end of the day, it's gonna be your rear end that's on the line, and and you want to know, am I gonna be able to trust this guy or not? So now now you're in a position where um, you're you're still recruiting um, pilots and people that that demonstrate that same tenacity and that same uh, composure. So is it? How important is it when you're when you're building a team to start with a set of values? Like, how important is it to know exactly what you're looking for? The reason that I ask is, as sales leaders, we spend a lot of time recruiting and and hunting talent, and I see people do this different ways. And I see our very best guys know exactly who they are and know what they're looking for, and they understand that their team is not for everyone. How much of that is, you know, I can mold this person into success, and how much of it is I'm looking for a very specific thing? You know, I've, so I've been doing this for about a year and a half now, and uh, the recruiting side of it, the, the recruiting side of it, yeah, and uh, and so just so, and we were, you know, we had we had about fifty openings whenever I first started, so you know, we were we were, it, which is a high percentage for you know for the amount we had, and uh, and so I took us from about thirty percent, you know, thirty uh, percent open openings to down uh, i think we're until this weekend i think uh i just had a guy that oh that quit or put in his res resignation but up until then uh you know now we're down to 0.2 percent you know wow one so and and industry-wide i don't think anybody in the industry that i've talked to i've probably talked to 10 different air carriers out there and i don't think anybody is below 10 percent 
And that's probably the lowest number. So I feel like that I've been able to use my skills, like you said, and, and assess, you know, is this guy going to work or not? Because even if a pilot is sitting across from me, he's qualified, he's, you know, he's exactly, you know, he could, he could walk in and, and put his rear end down in the seat. But, you know, for me, I know that if I don't put the right guy in the right place, I would want to know, can I, you know, because I'm going to have to crew, they're going to have to crew change with this guy. So I'm not going to give them, I'm not going to send them somebody that I wouldn't crew change with. And so I think when you do that, you kind of break the mold and you're like, you know what? I, if I have to look for another month, I will find the right guy, but I'm not just going to put, you know, bodies in seats. Uh, and it's a safety, you know, it's a safety factor also, you know, you want the right guy doing the right job. And just because he might have the qualifications on paper doesn't mean that he's got the fire in the gut and he's going to do a good job. I think it's a really important point. I think, and I don't know how different our worlds are. You work in the, you, you work in the, in the private sector now, right? I mean, you're looking for, for, um, life flight pilots and, and other like special operators. Is that right? So I, what I'm looking for, that's exactly right. Yeah, I'm looking for life flight pilots. Uh, we do have a, a large majority that we do have come over from the military uh, just because, you know, that is a that's a pool that we, we can pull from. Yeah. But, yeah, all, all of our guys, you know, they're, uh, you know, they're civilian on the civilian sector and they're flying uh, uh, helicopter ambulance is, is what they call it nowadays. But, yeah, it's airy back is exactly what it is. Well, what I see um, every so often is, and it's it's a challenge. Maybe tell me how you overcome this. But you got you know initially fifty open spots, and it's your job to fill them. A lot of times we get so task oriented, where it's like, man, I got to fill these seats. Our sales teams are the same way. Sometimes we look at our at our group and say, man, this team would really thrive with fifteen more people. And so we get them, we get the fifteen people, but often we don't spend the time getting it a hundred, we don't, we don't think, is this the best fit for the job? And I think your point of like your mentality of, if I have to take an extra month and keep hunting to find this person, I'm going to find the right fit. Cause ultimately it might take longer upfront, but think of your time spent over multiple years trying to mold this person into something that they may or may not ever actually become. Right. That's you, you hit the nail on the head because if if you're if I put a person in that's not going to fit in, uh, or he's not going to fit into the job, or he's he's you know going to be scared to go out there and fly single pilot IFR instruments in the clouds, and he's not ready for that. He looks like he is on paper, but he's really not. Because I ask the hard questions, you know. I mean, I ask, I, I look somebody in the eye, and I'm like, hey, if you get a flight at two o'clock in the morning, are you going to be able to jump up, you know, get your weather planning, get everything done, put this NICU you know, with a small child on board and fly into the clouds and shoot the approach to the ground. Are, are you willing to do that? And some guys, once you put it that way, you know, they, they, uh, they're not. And it's, but I want to know up front because you're right. If I put the wrong guy in there, I'm going to be filling that position in six months anyways. Yeah. A, they're not going to be able to perform and do their job or, or B, uh, they're not going to fit in. So you're, you're right. Putting them in up front, I think is valuable. Do you find a lot of people that think they want the position? I mean, when you when you're talking about this, like, hey, we need people that can that have you know extra special pilot skills and extra special mental skills and operating skills. Even when I hear that, I have no aviation experience or military experience. I'm like, man, that's really cool. That sounds like something that 
someone would naturally want. But when you ask the question the way you did, can you fly this with an infant through the clouds in weather, do you, do you, do you sit down with a lot of people that think they want the job, but they actually don't? Does that question make sense? Like, I, I meet a lot of people that think they want leadership jobs, but then if they could touch it for a second, they'd realize it's actually probably not for them. Do you see that very often? Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I had a kid one time I was interviewing, and uh, and he, re- I think he really wanted this job. He really, uh, he was a little bit lower time uh, pilot, but he was definitely qualified. Uh, and I asked that exact question. Matter of fact, that was the question I asked him, you know, because I, I, I noted some hesitation. Uh, he asked me several times, and usually that's it. If they start asking, and not just about the base, or because everybody wants to know, you know, what the surroundings are like and what their environment's going to be like. But if they start asking, you know, hey, am I going to be, you know, is this going to be hard? Is this that going to be hard? You know, you're a seasoned pilot. You should know that going into it. And, and that makes me start questioning hey, maybe I should start asking this guy some really hard questions. And, uh, and he didn't. And, and he, you know, but I, I will, I admire this gentleman because I, I asked him, you know, these hard questions. He called me back two days later and he said, hey, Boyd, you know, he said, I really appreciate you being honest with me. He said, you know, I didn't have to waste your time and go through new hire training and spend $20,000 on training, you know, and then get out and get to the base and figure out, you know what? I don't want to fly in the clouds at two o'clock in the morning and take that call. He said, so I appreciate you giving me, you know, you being transparent and, and honest with me. Um, and it saves everybody time, you know, that they don't, they don't want to fail either. So I, I think a guy would rather know that up front and know that hard question up front than, you know, than everybody pay the price in the end. Yeah. There's a, there's a really well-known book called good to great. And that's one of the very first things is who first, who, then what you have to find the right person uh, I think that's a really, I think that's a really applicable lesson to to, to all of our listeners. Um, I want to take a second, and I, I found your story of how you got into the military and becoming a night stalker pretty interesting, and uh, I, especially the part about to to kind of refresh your memory. Uh, you told me you were born in Denton, Texas, and your parents divorced when you were seven, and y- your life was kind of thrown into thrown into chaos. Maybe maybe talk about that. And what drove you to seek, uh, you know, high performance, uh, high performance career in the military? You know, uh, you're right. Um, it's I think for me, you know, I was a seven year old boy. Uh, I've been that is that is like a crucial time, you know, that that when you're when you're on the wall and you're climbing the wall, so to speak, that you need to turn around and, and you need that good fatherly figure to give you the thumbs up and say, hey, you're you're, you're smashing this. You got it. And, and I think during that time, I just I, I didn't have it. And uh, and so I really I think I was really looking for uh some discipline in my life. And, when I, you know, when I say discipline, or, you know, a, a figure that would, you know, keep me on track and keep me motivated because I, I, that's really the mentality I had. Uh, I, I really wanted to be put on task. I really wanted to, you know, I, I, as long as I can remember, I wanted to, you know, go in the military. Uh, it's just something that, that I always wanted to do. Uh, and, and I'm sure a lot of that had to do. Uh, my grandfather was a, uh, he was a CB. And so I, he was in my life until about 12, and, and I lost him. But during that time frame, I, I always thought, you know, the military was definitely the path that I, that I would want to choose. You see, that's, that's crazy to me because a lot of people when they're seven, so I have a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old, and 
I, I don't know that they want, you know what I mean? Like usually when you tell them to do something, you try to impose structure. I, I Starting out from the very beginning, you strike me as, a, as I don't want to say a strange kid, but that's a little strange that you said, man, I, I want discipline. I want structure. I mean, I, I see it on movies where like, hey, start obeying me or I'm going to throw you in the military. You wanted that. I did. I did from an early age. Well, I think when you, I think when you, you're thrown into a such a non-structured environment, and, and your whole world is is, is kind of chaos, uh, and and you view the military as, you know, I, I, I guess we could call it con- controlled chaos sometimes. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because it, it is sometimes even battle sometimes is controlled chaos. Uh, I, I think you know, I, I for me it was it was a normal it was a normal walk that that's that's what I really wanted at an early age was you know something something to control that chaos something that would you know pull things together and and show me some discipline and and I guess the next move in my life. Um, so from that point, you uh, you kind of experience the chaos and then talk about moving out when you were 16 i thought that was interesting too you just kind of made it work everywhere you go you know i, I did <laughs> so I, I was working on i had been working on a uh, on a ranch since i was about 13 uh mucking stalls uh baling hay you know putting hay up all summer and uh and when i was 16 i, I just gotten to the point in my life to where uh it, it was just chaotic in in my house and uh and I, I just moved out. I, I found out, you know, legally, I said, okay, fine, I can move out and, and no repercussions whatsoever. And so I went to my boss uh, and, and I asked my boss at the ranch, I said, hey, uh, there's an old dairy barn, old abandoned dairy barn. Uh, would you mind if I used one of those rooms uh, back there to, you know, to live in? And she said, I know you're having some family problems. She said, hey, use it as long as you want. Uh, so basically I took, a, an old abandoned room. It's probably a 10 foot by 10 foot room, took an old army cot. <laughs> and, uh, at the time we still had the, uh, the, uh, what do you call them? The feed sacks, you know? And I, so I stapled a, uh, cloth feed sack to it to, you know, to make, make my cot, you know, work and serviceable and, uh, got a little camp stove and took a, an old, uh, milk, uh, dispenser and hooked it up as a shower head and man i'm telling you during that first six months to a year it was you know it was fantastic i mean it was it was just incredible i loved it i was out on my own i I could you know i could wake up in the morning i could go for a run you know and so for me it was finally it was finally really a way out of all that chaos that's amazing I, I can't imagine making something like that. Well, when I was 16, my emotions changed day to day, right? One day, yeah, you want to move out. And then another, it, you know, you're scared and need comfort. Like you strike me as a very resolute person. Maybe you're born with it. Maybe that's one of your gifts. But And then to hear you say, man, I loved it. Like <laughs> most 16-year-olds think everything sucks. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, maybe, maybe they, just, have, maybe they just, just haven't had the right suck. They haven't had the right kind of chaos. <laughs> if you have, if you have the right kind of bad, you know, sometimes uh, anything can seem nice, you know. That's a good point. So then, right into the military from there, right? I did. I was 18, 18 joined the military, uh, went in, and I really, you know, I really wanted to go the airborne route. Uh, uh, I, I married really early. Uh, and so I, I was really wanting to get in and, you know, get a paycheck and, and not have that transition period. 
And so uh, they, they said, hey, it's going to be at least three or four months before your airborne physical is going to come back and this and that. So I was like, you know, I, I need I need a job now. I need stability. I need, you know, insurance. And so I went ahead and just, you know, went in. I went in as a uh, as a M1 tank mechanic. So working on the uh, working on the electrical systems and everything and uh, and then just kind of work my way up. That's crazy. So um, you mentioned that, you, you know, you wanted to fly, but early on that that it wasn't what you thought it was going to be, that, that you thought everybody would be tier one. And uh, t- take me through that all the way up to the, the, the board meeting or when you went to the board. That story is amazing. <laughs> well, sometimes sometimes I had to be in, I, I guess, the controlled environment on, on who I tell that, you know, who I tell that to. But I, I, we'll air it. We'll air it. It was. You know, hey, man, you're amongst you're amongst friends, friends and strangers, man. Let's let's hear it. So. Uh, so, you know, well, I thought, you know, you watch all the movies and everything else, and, and I really didn't have anybody super close to me that was in the military. And so I thought, man, I'm going to get in here and everybody's going to be disciplined. You know, we're not going to have any, you know, everybody's going to be a PT stud across the board. And, uh, and, and I found out as soon as I went to my first platoon, of course, I, I graduated uh, with honors out of AIT and, uh, and then went into my straight into my training you know graduated with honors there and uh and went to my very first unit and i uh, got to my unit and they said hey you know you need to take three weeks and get yourself ready and get a you know get a phone this around i said now sorry i'm ready to go uh, i'm ready to go to work and they're like well do you have you already have a place to stay i said yeah I'm, I'm ready to go to work and so they're just first of all they're blown away i said well man we really need somebody squared away that can you know, take over the, uh, the, the tool room basically in, in on this motor pool. And I said, well, okay, I can do that for you. And so I guess they had failed multiple, multiple inspections and they were getting ready for a big inspection coming up. So uh, he told me what I wanted said, sure, no problem. But, you know, as we started, as I started moving out through my military career, I, I you know, there were guys that had gotten DUIs. There were first sergeants that, you know, I, I mean, it was just, I was astounded. I was like, what is going on? You know, these people are supposed to be, you know, I had a squad leader that was borrowing money from me and it was just, it was like, it was out of control. And, uh, and so I got really disillusioned. And so I knew at that point going into this board, uh, that I I was going to do one or three things. Uh, I really, I really wanted to fly. Uh, that that's what I really came into the military for was to fly. Uh, number two, I was going to go into the special forces. Uh, that that was my second choice, and second choice only because I had a family at the time. And uh, and number three, I, I was just I was going to get out. I was going to get a clean break and and go do something in the corporate world or or, or wherever I could. And so that, you know, I knew for me I, I, that was a demarcation line. I wanted I wanted a, or innate professionals around me, and that's not what I was getting. You know, at that level, in that unit level. So yeah. So when you uh, talk about that board meeting and talk about kind of what they put you through, first of all, are you able to get out? Like if that would have been the choice, I thought once you signed up, you were there for a certain amount of time and contractually obligated. I had, so I had about, I'd already had, I signed up for a four year enlistment. Okay. I was already, I was already on year, I was coming up on year three. So I, I had a year to figure out, you know, what I was going to do. And I knew I needed at least a year to make some sort of transition, whatever that was. 
you know, I, I try not to not ever have a plan. So that was kind of my timeline that, hey, this, this year I've got one year to figure out what I'm going to do. So I knew going into the board meeting that uh, that I was – or the soldier board, uh, it was the NCO board is what it was. I knew that that was going to be – that was going to be my cutoff, that, you know, that board meeting. So, And are those meetings like evaluations or are they like – I mean, they're not career consulting sessions, but do you talk about like, you know, where you're performing well and where you could possibly go? Is that is that the point of no, this? No, no, really, really, what it is is it, the way the board. And of course, I, you know, I was I was young. I, I was I was a junior NCO, and and so I really, you know, I, I knew a little bit about the, you know, what was going to go on in the board. Uh, but basically, there, there's a sergeant major that sits at the head of, at the head of the board, uh, and and there's usually anywhere from three to six first sergeants in there. And really the, the sergeant major has really no say so over the board. It's really the first sergeant that, uh, you know, that kind of control the board. He just kind of oversees it. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to get the guys through that they think should go to the uh, professional development schools. And so, you know, they'll talk, take the top 10%, they'll interview 15 people, and then they'll take the top 10% and send them to, you know, like the NCO Academy or something like that. So it's, it's kind of an, a semi-evaluation board. Uh, and do so you mean to go into, <laughs> you may go straight into the board? Well, I want to know the, how you learned a lesson in honesty. That's what I want to know. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I think probably, probably from my grandfather, he, he was, I think he was probably one of the, one of the most honest people, you know, that I ever met. Uh, he told you a lot of things you didn't want to hear, uh, but they were things you needed to hear. And, uh, and so for me that I think that always kind of set the base tone of really, I, I guess, Hey, when the rubber meets the road, you just, just throw it out there. Just be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, most people know anyways, you know, I mean, it, it the world we walk around in now, you know, people, I kind of tiptoe around everything, you know, and, and very, very seldom do we actually get the, the honest opinion, so to speak. Yeah. So yeah, let's jump into the board and where the honest opinion came out. <laughs> <laughs> well, the board was, you know, they, they ask you several questions. So I'd study for the board and, and you assume what they're going to ask you in there is, um, you know, like about your specialty skill, about, you know, uh, your weapon, your weapon systems and so on and so forth. So I remember this one first sergeant. Uh, I, I did not. I, I had. I, I knew he had gotten a DUI about a month or two earlier, and uh, and I just it really frustrated me that you know they never did anything about this in our battalion, and they just kind of you know threw it underneath the carpet. And so it got around to his question. So he asked me. Uh, he said, "Hey, tell me everything you know about PEPSI." And so I'm thinking, I'm like, man, pressure. And so he looks at me and he kind of, you know, kind of halfway laughs and smirks. And he said, Pepsi, Pepsi dummy. <laughs> I, I thought, I thought, you know, I thought, man, you just, you're wasting my time. So he said, you didn't think that was funny? I said, no, I, no, I didn't think it was funny. I did not think that was funny for sure. And he said, really? So that's when the, you know, so I knew the sharks were circling, so to speak, in the room because, you know, he'd drawn blood and, and so I thought, I thought, okay, well, I'm just, you know, I, I'm not, it, it, this board is my demarcation line anyway, so I'm just going to be honest through this whole thing. And he said, well, he asked me, he said, well, who do you think the ugliest first sergeant in this room is? And uh, so I looked around the room and, and, and I found the ugliest person. 
And, uh, You're like, this feels, this feels like a trap, right? Yeah. <laughs> And, and then another first sergeant, he asked me, he said, well, you don't think I'm ugly? I said, well, you're ugly first sergeant, but you're not as ugly as he is. <laughs> then then they, they really started circling and, uh, you know, asked me, do you want to be in the army? I said, I said, absolutely first sergeant, you know, why are you, you know, you, so, so anyways, basically the sergeant major, he slammed his hand down the thing and he, he said, stop, stop, stop. He said, and he looked at me and he said, Sergeant Curry, he said, what is wrong with you? I said, absolutely nothing, Sergeant Major. <laughs> And he said, do you, do you not, do you want to be out of the army? I said, no, I don't. No, I do not, Sergeant Major. I said, I love the army. And uh, he said, well, what is your problem? I said, Sergeant Major, I don't have a problem. And uh, so he put every, he said, everybody out, cleared everybody out. And uh, so all the first sergeants left, it was me and him left in there. And uh, after they closed the door, he asked me, he said, do you have a major malfunction? I said, Sergeant Major, I do not. I said, uh, no, no malfunction whatsoever. I have no you know, no bitter taste in my mouth about the army. I said, I love the army. And so he asked me, he said, well, let's just, let's just be honest. So I, I let it go. And I said, I said, do you really want to hear certain major? And he did. So I really, I just let it rip. And I said, Hey, I've got a squad leader who's borrowing money from me. You know, I've got a platoon leader that's having a, you know, having affairs going on left and right, you know, and I've got a, I've got a commander, you know, that, that got in a fist fight at the bar. And then I've, you know, one of our first sergeants here, he got a DUI three months ago. I said, what is going on with your army? I said, this is insane. I said, I did not sign up for this. I signed up to be with professional soldiers, and that is not what I'm getting. I said, so, I said, I'm moving on, Sergeant Major, one way or another. And he said, oh, yeah, what's your plan? I said, well, Sergeant Major, I said, in one year, I will do one of three things. I will go to flight school because I'm working on getting my flight packet put in. Number two, I'm going to go into the special forces. Or number three, I'm going to I'm going to get out. And uh, he said, "Do you want out of the army?" I said, "No, I don't, Sergeant Major." I said, "I love the army. This is a great career." I said, "I love it. I love it. I've loved every day of it." And uh, he said, "What do you really want to do?" I said, "Sergeant Major, I want to fly. I want to get my flight packet put in." And uh, and he said, "Okay, every Thursday." you're going to come to my office every Thursday or every Friday, whichever one you can get free. And I, of course I'm thinking, man, I am in major trouble. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sergeant major. I said, uh, so is this for disciplinary actions? And he said, no, this is so, uh, this is so you can get your flight packet in son. And this is so you can, uh, you can make happen what you're trying to make happen. He said, you know, I looked at your record. He said, you've made every rank of, you know, you know, below the grade, you, you've done everything you're supposed to do. And uh, he says, time the Army starts putting some skin in the game for you. And uh, I said, well, Sergeant Major, I truly appreciate it. And so it was, you know, that was, I think, because of that honesty that happened between me and him, that really kind of set the bar uh, in my career. And I thought, you know, this is the way I'm going to live my life for the rest of my life. And, uh, and it worked. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's interesting, too, because even as you're telling that story, when you commit, you don't know how it's going to go. Even when he says, who's the ugliest one in the room? It's like, are you messing with me or do you really want me to answer? Because it's him. And you don't know if you're in trouble or not, you know? But I, I, I respect the fact that you're like, you know what? This is how I want to live my life. Decision made once and don't have to revisit it again, you know? Absolutely. Well, that's great. Well, um, let's talk about some lessons that you learned in combat. Because I know that you really wanted to... You wanted to add value. You wanted to go. Um, but I know we, we talked about how in Desert Storm you didn't get called out to go. But then uh, 
when the Iraq invasion happened, that was that was your time of rampant deployment. Is that right? It, it really was. Uh, you know, when 9-11 happened, uh, I mean, our, our unit was, you know, one of the first ones over, you know, over to Afghanistan and with boots on ground and uh, and, and same in our, same as Iraq as well. And, uh, and, and I knew for me that it, every soldier, you know, being a good soldier wants, they, they want to know. I think everybody truly wants to know is, uh, do I have it? Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes to, you know, to go into combat, you know, to do this mission? Uh, I think we all want to know, you know, uh, and, and it's just, do I have it? Do I have what it, you know, do I have what it takes? And so when that when the unit uh, started to deploy and do that, that that's actually I actually was in when 9/11 happened. I was actually in Fort Riley, Kansas, and I, I remember I was sitting at my desk, and uh, and when we got attacked, then and I told a good friend of mine uh, in the next room, I said, "Hey, Craig, I think we're under attack." And uh, and so uh, after that happened, about six months later, I, I you know I got a telephone call uh, from a good friend of mine who was already in the 160th. And uh, he said, "Man, you really need to come over here." They started r- recruiting really heavy, and uh, and so that's when I went over. I went over and assessed in uh, in late 2002, and and got picked up, and then uh, and then went through Green Platoon in, in 2003. So it, for for me, it was I was I was excited, and I don't know if, if you could say excited about combat, so to speak, but uh, but I was excited to to be a part of something. That, uh, that I've trained for all my life, you know, because you do. You've, as a soldier, that's that's what you're trained for. That's what you want to do. You want to do your job. Well, and, and how many rotations did you end up doing? How many tours? So I did 17 rotations total to Iraq. Jeez. Did seven, 17, 17 rotations. So how does that work? You're there and back, or you stay out for a time? What's a rotation? You know... We would go out, you know, I would, we would get deployed, uh, for three months at a time, three or four months at a time, uh, depending on, you know, what theater you were in and, and then you would rotate back home. Uh, so, so you're constantly, you're constantly in and out of, in and out of theater and, and the times change, you know, more or less on, on either end, you know, it's never an exact time frame that you're going to be there. Usually, you know, it, it's a, you can kind of guess, but uh, but you know you usually hit it within ten or twenty days on either side. Um, was there? I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot of time back and forth. Uh, any any close calls while you're out there? Anything that you know made you question your safety or your purpose, or you know, should I be back home with my family? Did you ever? Did you ever go through any of that? Is that the dumbest question ever? Because everybody goes through that. <laughs> I, I laugh because uh, you know every uh, I won't say every, but uh, but the areas you know the areas we operated in were were such high intensity uh, flying all the time. Uh, you know, I, honestly, almost every other day was a close call. Uh, wow. that, that's just cause you, you operated on the edge and on the envelope. You know, all the time. I mean, when you have four, when you have four aircraft, you know, landing in a small confined place and everybody, you know, when you're coming in for landing, you know, you see, in, you know, in the desert scenes, you see the, the big dust storm and everything else. Well, if you can imagine the dust storm <laughs> with, with zero visibility 
with night vision goggles on and, you know, you lose the guy in front of you and you're hoping the guy in front of you doesn't drift aft and you hope that you don't drift, you know, forward. And, uh, and sometimes it, you, you have to wait that 30 seconds to a minute before everything clears. And, and I've had guys, I've seen guys in front of me, literally the aircraft turned 180 degrees Wow! and you think, and you think, you know, I, I don't know how we made it through this one. I, I really don't. Uh, but you just do, you know, every, uh, every time you learn, every time you get better, uh, and when you're operating on those edges, you know, at the edge of that all the time, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's varsity team all the time. Yeah. For me, for me, like when I watch the movies, I read the books, you know, like I, I, I had a time where I was reading kind of everything that those, that, you know, special operators had put out. And to me, it seems like, oh no, they're dialed. They got the very best. They're, they're America's finest. They're going out. And then to hear you talk, you come back every night and you're like, wow, I don't know how we made it through that one. Is it, it's crazy that balance because you are highly trained. You had been preparing your whole life, but at the end of the day, it sounds like it's just a sketchy situation, right? That you're just having to employ all your skills all the time in order to, to stay safe out there. You're, you're, I would say probably 80 to 90% of the time you are on that ragged edge all the time. Wow. You're, you're, you're roping guys into a, you know, into an urban rooftop and, you know, you've got three or four targets going on at the same time. And, you know, there's, there's breachers going on, you know, 10 feet below you. And I mean, you've got, you've got fire going on everywhere. So it, there, there's just always, there's just always so much going on, you know, and, and I, I think you get caught up in it. Uh, I, I, did, I remember one time coming back, uh, there was a good friend of mine um, and Jim Boyd, I'm going to mention your name on here. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they called it the Jim Boyd Curry team because it, he was Jim Boyd and I'm Boyd Curry. So we always laughed about it. But, uh, but anyways, we came back and we were watching some of the feed, you know, and, uh, and as we're watching it, I'm thinking it at the time. I'm thinking, wow, that looks that looks extremely fast. And so I, I remember asking the guy that was playing the feedback. I said, "Hey, man, can you can you uh, play that regular time and and not in you know not fast speed?" And he he looked turned around, and looked at me, and he said, "Hey, sir, this is real time." So I was like, "Wow, wow." <laughs> so had, had I been there, you know, had I seen it before, I would have thought I would have given myself an extra second or two. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but you're just riding, you know, you're riding that ragged edge all the time because the guy next to you, you know, he's relying on you to be at that exact place at that exact time. And, you know, especially when you're hitting an urban target, I mean, you're talking about putting, you know, in, in the middle, in the middle of downtown Baghdad, you're talking about putting, you know, multiple aircraft in. And on a single cupola, you know, on a single rooftop, and, you know, and you better make sure you got the right one. You better make sure you got the right one because they're counting on it. Man, that is so crazy to me. Have you seen, uh, have you seen the Hurt Locker? I have. Yeah. Yeah, I have. That quote, um, I think it's at the very beginning where it talks about uh, war being a drug. Do you, do you think that's true? Do you think people get... I don't know if addicted to the, to the, I mean, to me, I see the camaraderie. I see the high performance. I see the extreme high stakes. I see that you've trained, you're prepared, you feel qualified, but was there a part of you that just really wanted and needed to be in that action? I'm going to tell you that what, you know, every, and this is, this is across the board, you know, for every combat veteran that, that has had, 
you know, extensive, multiple, multiple combat tours. Uh, you know, it, it, re, it really does rewire your brain. And so you get, you get so used to living on that edge all the time that, uh, that you're, it, it's a, it's a sensory, it's an addiction. It's, uh, uh, and, and it is something that I see my peers struggling with on a daily basis. And, uh, and that comes with, you know, either putting yourself into your job or people constantly doing extreme sports or, you know, you are, no matter what you are living your life on that ragged edge all the time. I still do. I've done it since, since I got out in 2009. It, it it totally you're just completely rewired. Wow, I've never heard anybody explain it like that. I think it's really profound and it's really interesting. But it would have to like again, you you have different chemicals running through your body for I mean, in your case, four and a half years, right? Like that would have to change a person. I've just never heard it described like that. I've got almost almost four and a half years cumulative time in Iraq. Yeah. So if, I'm flying, you know, high stress combat missions, you know, continuously, constantly. So is it something that you struggle with? Like, how do you feel like you're doing? Are you one that can say, I'm doing okay. I compartmentalize the chaos and I, I'm healthy. Or are you, are you somebody that's constantly affected and, and, and struggles with, uh, the way you should behave or the way you should feel? Depends on if you, the, Depends on if you talk to me or my wife. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should ask her that question. <laughs> maybe she asked her. Uh, you know, it, it's it is every. I will tell you. Um, you know, not every day is a constant struggle, but you know, probably at least two or three days or more out of every week is a constant struggle, because you want. I mean, you want that. You want that sensory. You, you know, you want that whatever it is, uh, you know, for me, I started, you know, I started doing, uh, like I did the John Muir, I did the John Muir twice. I did John Muir solo one time, you know, climbed Whitney, climbed, you know, Rainier, took a couple of teams up Rainier, you know, I mean, just constantly living that, that, that ragged edge all the time. Um, and for now, you know, I, I still live my, you know, I wake up at four 30 every morning, you know, I'm on the row or I'm on the, you know, I'm benching, I, I go out and do my run, uh, you know, but just like today, as soon as we hang up, I, you know, I'm getting ready to go down. My parents have a, a little ranch and, uh, and I'll go down there. And, and usually that's what I do is I get out and I usually walk, you know, two or three miles, uh, usually with a rucksack on and I'm just getting out there doing the deed. Um, you need that. I, I mean, I, I have to have it. It's one of those things where if I don't, it, it's, uh, it's sensory underload. Mm -hmm. Is it hard for your family to deal with that? Because you need it, but they could never understand the way that your brain's been wired. So is it ever like, hey, you're, you're done working. Why don't you come home? Absolutely. Uh, you, I will, you know, so me and my wife actually met over over in Iraq she was a uh, she was a contractor over there but she was active duty for seven years uh, and we were on matter of fact we were on the same compound over there and uh, and I think it's because she knew my background she knew you know the extent that I operated on all the time uh, that you know and and I've you know man I'm going to counseling on it you know how how do I 
now transfer this into, you know, the civilian sector. And it's it, it's extremely hard. You know, it's extremely hard because nobody runs in the civilian sector. Usually, typically, nobody runs at that pace. They they just don't. Uh, so, so you have to, you know, I find a new group of guys to get around, you know, I've, I've got a range that I belong to and, and, <laughs> and they're all, they're all, uh, you know, they're all fast movers. They, they are, uh, that, that's just the lifestyle that, that I think you, you end up with. Those are the kind of people that you surround yourself with. Well, um, hopefully you get a lot of respect and appropriate thanks for your service, but hearing it described like that, you literally sacrifice your life existence mental health your family to go out there and do something you believe in and keep us safe so genuinely appreciate the service and i appreciate that insight no one's ever explained it to me like that before thank you i i, I appreciate that time I, I really do and my, my family appreciates it too so thank you yeah what what are what are some of the lessons like if you look back at like a thirty thousand view and say what, what did I learn from all this? What, what are a couple um, like things that are a part of you now or things that you understand differently or just lessons you've learned from, from your time in, in combat? I think, you know, at the 30,000 feet view, I think always have a plan. Always, always have a plan, and uh, and whether that's a you know to make a plan before you go to the supermarket, or make a plan to go out and do a hostage rescue that you're going to plan you know for two days, uh, always at least have a plan to go off of, and uh, and I would and I would probably say uh, you know number two, uh, know when to know when to get out, you know because I, I see a lot of guys that I feel like could have ended up a lot better off than they are now uh, had they had they gotten out a little bit earlier you know because when you just when you go to the well so many times uh, there becomes that point that it's it's just hard it's just hard to uh, to make that transition mm-hmm. so I would say always have a plan and, you know and always always know when it's your time that's great advice um, you know, I, I see a lot of people that operate without a plan. You do too. You have to, uh, especially with your training and your skill set. But I, even though I do it sometimes, it strikes me as crazy. Like, for example, people spend all their time working and, and you know, chasing dollars and, and security and stuff. But then they don't have a plan for what to do with the money once they make it. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's a simple example. But that's... I mean, that's myself. That's everybody. It just it strikes me as crazy that our time goes into doing, but we don't come up for air that often or look around and say, where am I? You know what I mean? I, I do. I, I see Pete. You know, I, I went out. I've got a friend who, you know, who I hunt with out in uh, out in Lamar, Colorado. And, uh, and his, him and his wife, they're, you know, he's he's a little bit older than I He's about 10 or 15 years older than I am. But uh, but that's the problem he's having is he, he's made a lot of money. He's made good investments. Uh, and, but he, he has not figured out how to make that transition and have somebody have to either sell the property that he has, uh, or to turn it over. And so he said, man, that's my number one, you know, gripe is that I net, I, I, I made it and I made all the money and I, I own all this property, 
but I don't, I don't have an escape plan. I don't have a plan, you know, now that I'm 65 on, on how to, how to turn this over or what to do with it. You know, so I, I would say that's probably one of my things that, that I try to think about all the time is, is, you know, when, the, when that time comes, what's my plan? What is my, you know, what am I going to do with my money? Am I, you know, is that going to go to my kids or are my kids going to be ready? Do they have a plan? So having a plan is, is crucial, I think. Yeah, well, and a lot of times it only comes down to 10 to 15 minutes a day. Some things, you know, your quarterly plan, you need a couple hours, maybe a day, whatever. You know, you, you add a new member to your family or your life changes, you got to sit and plan that. But for the most part, right, you probably start as small as, all right, what's the plan for today? What time are you going to do this? What time are you going to go to the ranch? What things do you want to accomplish before? And it's that simple thing compounded over time. Interesting. Absolutely. That's Interesting. good insight, Ty. Um, how are some of these lessons uh, transcended your life now? Um, you know, you talk about your family. You mentioned at the very beginning that your daughter's a professional gymnast. Uh, I, is it her or you that's a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu? Peyton is. Peyton. Yeah, oh. Peyton is. A, she just got uh, about, oh, it's been two months ago, three months ago now. And, uh, and she just got, she started before I did. Uh, and so she got her black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm sitting with my purple belt. Of course, she teases me all the time. But, uh, <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting Boyd, Boyd. So it, it's crazy that it, she seems to have that. Is that wiring come from you or is that something you've tried to instill in her? You know, uh, I think a little bit of both, but uh, but at the at the end of the day, I, I think she she just she has that switch. She has that she has that wiring. Uh, I, I can see it. At you know, had I think had mine been me and my wife talk about this all the time. You know, man, had had our lives been more focused and focused that you know that energy. Uh, wow, where we could, you know, where we could be. I mean, we've done, we've done great. You know, I mean, we both of us make a very good living. She's an engineer, but man, I, I if somebody would have thought generationally mm-hmm. and dove in and put that time in, you know, where could, where could we be now? And so I think that's what Peyton is a product of is, is both me and, you know, both me and my wife, we, we've really dove in and, uh, and we we really I think have tried to be generational with her, uh, meaning that I want her not only for her, but I want it for you too. I want her to be a, a, a good product and you know to society when she steps into society for you and you know for Jeremy and for everybody else because uh, you know our nation's counting on it. They're can- they're counting on the next generation, and so I want I, you know this is the one thing I feel like that's the one thing I can do is prepare her and and send her out into the world and and be that you know one percenter it's exactly what you're supposed to do man that's it's it's refreshingly awesome to hear accomplished people put their energy back into the next generation that's that's great man i compliments on getting that one right if you got other things wrong you got that one right so good work (laughs) well i've got plenty i've got plenty wrong so so i'll take that one there it is 
Hey, well, uh, we're going to close out, Boyd. I, I, you know, this has been kind of fun for me. I, I don't even, I wouldn't recognize you in a crowd. We've only spoken over the phone, but I hope someday I get a chance to take you out to dinner. And I know that the people listening our Salesforce will really glean a lot of value from this. I, I appreciate the service. I appreciate the stories. I appreciate the lessons learned. And would say to continue going forth, man. You're still, you're still young. You're still cracking at it. So I'm excited to see what you accomplish in the future. Well, I, re- I really appreciate it, Ty. Hey, hey, before we hang up, I'd like to, I'd like to, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to actually uh, read you our uh, our Night Stalkers Creed. I'd love that. I'd love it. Let's do it. Take me about twenty seconds here. Are you ready? You got all the time you need. All right, brother. Service in the one sixtieth is a calling only a few will answer. For the mission is constantly demanding and hard, and when the impossible has to be accomplished. The only reward is another mission that no one else will try. As a member of the Night Stalkers, I'm a tested volunteer, seeking only to safeguard the honor and privilege of my country. By serving the elite special operations soldiers of the United States, I pledge to maintain my body, mind, and equipment in a constant state of readiness, for I'm a member of the fastest deployable task force in the world, ready to move at a moment's notice, anytime, anywhere, arriving on target, plus or minus 30 seconds. I guard my unit's mission with secrecy for my only true allies, the night and the element of surprise. My manner is that of a special operations quiet professional. Secrecy is a way of life. In battle, I eagerly meet the enemy up front. I volunteer to be up front where the fighting is hard. I fear no foe's ability nor underestimate his will to fight. The mission and my precious cargo are my concern. I will never surrender. I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. And under no circumstances will I ever embarrass my country. Gallantly, I will show the world and the elite forces I support that the Night Stalkers is a specially selected and well-trained soldier. I serve with the memory and the pride of those who have gone before me, for they love to fight, fight to win, and would rather die than quit. Night Stalkers don't quit. Man. That's crazy. That's very powerful. How much of that is is your core belief to this day? I think I know the answer to that. But how how formidable has that creed been in your life? One hundred percent. Yeah, I think uh, you know. I, I think it. I think one hundred percent. I really do. I think we all, you know, and I think everybody could take that and apply to the sales arena or to any, you know, any specialty job. And, you know, am I going to meet my client on time? Am I going to start my meeting on time? Am I going to, you know, get enough sleep the night before so I can go do the right thing for the right company and the right person? And and when I take my team out on the road, am I going to show them how to do it? So I I think you could, you know, personally, I think you could take that creed and move it into any, you know, professional environment. I really do. Well, you certainly have. It sounds like it's in your family, it's in your profession, and it continues to, to, to support you in your endeavors, man. That's, I really appreciate you sharing that. That's awesome. Well, Ty, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you guys for uh, giving me the opportunity to say hello to everybody, and, uh, and I wish everybody well on that end. That's great. Thank you so much, Boyd. Appreciate it. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This is Electric People. Take these principles and go be electric.